0: Okay, we um, open up to James chapter 1. We are actually at verse 13. And he says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. The word there for temptation is perosmos, And it's the same Greek word for test or trial. Temptation. Isn't that interesting? So if that be the case, we have to decide by the context of what this means. It's the same word translated uh, to this word. If you look in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Parasmos. The same Greek word that we see here in verse 13 that's tempted. Look in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Trial in verse 2. Trial in verse 12 is that kind of trial that God sends our way. Test. And that's what God sends. But here, in verse 13 now, he uses the same word and it has a different sense to it. A different source is where we're getting at. That's exactly right. Um, It's not from God this time. The trial is from God. The temptation is not from God. He uses the same word. This could be confusing. But if you look at the text and use the rules, you understand that this is clear as... The blue sky that we don't have today, that we had yesterday. Not complaining. Makes you appreciate those blue skies when they come out even more. And we have a blue shirt sitting back there. We have a lot of blue shirts here today. You know, that's the common thing today. Yay for blue. Blue sky, blue shirts. Okay, God tests or tries believers. He does not tempt anyone. We've seen that so far. God tested Abraham. That was a test, wasn't it? He didn't tempt him, but he tested him, and he asked him actually to sacrifice his son. Right? If you look in Genesis chapter 22, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to move on, okay? Genesis 22, you're probably familiar with the story, but that's Abraham and God told him to sacrifice his son. Abraham went and did, got everything ready, and he was ready to sacrifice his son, and that was the biggest test. But all up to this time, God had been testing him, and he gave him the greatest test. <laughs> right. And uh, he believed God. And uh, of course, he had, he had already been shown that he is righteous. But he was willing to sacrifice his son because he knew that he would come alive again. Um, But he didn't kill him as he's getting ready to, we know. That was a test. That was a huge test, wasn't it? Um, God tested Job. Job had a lifetime of test himself. God had blessed him abundantly with physical things. And then Job comes up, or uh, uh, the devil comes up to God, and of course uh, he says, "Yeah, well, sure, you know he's a righteous man and everything, but uh, if you really put him to a real test, he'll fall." And uh, God says, "Okay, I'm going to allow you, Satan, to do whatever you want to do. Just you cannot kill him." And so, uh, quite a test there that Job had with uh, all of his trials. Those were tests, weren't they? Test. So He tests the righteous people. We can also say that God tests even the wicked people, their respective characters. You can go back to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm 11, verses 4 through 7. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test. The Sons of men, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked to show where they're really at. That's what He does. Um, look in Exodus chapter sixteen verse four exodus sixteen four and this is whenever the children of Israel are out in the wilderness, they're hungry. In verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So he tests them. They are to do it exactly the way he said it. And then, you know was it on the sixth day, they were to to get a double portion to last them through the Sabbath day, or that seventh day, so they would rest on that day and they'd have plenty of food. That day, the bread wouldn't turn into worms. Amazing thing, right? But he tested them there to see if they would listen to his instructions. So there's, there's a test. So with his people, the purpose of God's test is to refine our faith. Like gold, Or like silver, look in Psalm 66, verse 10 through 12. He is here to refine us. And He refines us more. And then refines us more and more. 66, verse 10, For you have tried us, O God, tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You did that. You made men right over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Here's the good part. That's good too, though. Yet, you brought us out into a place of abundance. See what he does? He said, well, that sure is negative thinking. Well, it's all how you look at it. From God's viewpoint, it's positive as can be. Because He knows what He's doing and His children are going to be refined. And He uses these kind of methods to do that because it's the perfect way. It couldn't be better. And yet, at the same time, we're wondering, oh, yeah? Do you trust God, though? Tried his... did you Did you see that oppressive burden? <laughs> wow. That's the gospel? No, that's not part of the truth? We have indwelling sin. As believers, we still have indwelling sin. And with our flesh and the world and Satan, every test can become a temptation to sin. And we can look at God and look at Him as being evil at doing what He's doing and question Him. And then we'll wind up doing something out of His will to get out of that test that He has provided for us. Temptations do not come from God. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, the fall of mankind has been evident, has it not? It's been prone also to shift the blame to somebody else, to God. That's what happened in Genesis three. Let's look at that, verses twelve and thirteen. Back to the beginning. This is our foundation. This is how we see how man got to be where he is. It's a sad story, but yet God has a way. What did I say? Genesis three, twelve and thirteen. After Adam and Eve sin, they find out that they're naked kind of running from God, and God catches up with him. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. The woman. So there's blame number one. But really, we wouldn't have any problem had you not given this woman to me. Now before, when he first saw the woman, you know, I mean, he gets all excited and everything, right? Right? So, oh, anyway, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Well, she was deceived, but Adam disobeyed.
1: That's right. That is exactly right.
0: Then the Lord God said to the woman, well, What is this you have done? And the woman said, <laughs> Flip Wilson, what is it? The devil made me do That's funny. You go back to the 60s and that still speaks even if you never watch the show, right? Uh, you know, how often have we used that? The serpent deceived me and I... What she has a half-truth there. That That is right. It, but she's really blaming on serpent and, and really she didn't have to take that fruit there. She didn't have to do that. So they're, they're both doing that, but but they're they're blaming blaming God, aren't they? Matter of fact, uh, as you see Adam here, I think he's impugning the very holiness of God. The very character of God is at stake whenever he does that. And then there's one that I think is. Is humorous if, if sin can be humorous, and I don't think it can be. But in another sense, I guess, in a sense, the way that it's put here, uh, Aaron tried to be uh, a little bit jovial. And if you look in Exodus chapter 32, we'll look at verses two through four. Exodus 32. You have Moses is going up to the mountain to meet with God. He's going to get the Ten Commandments there. In the meantime, the people are down below. Aaron tells them, Hey, take off your jewelry, all the gold uh, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. All people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand. All the the fine gold that had been brought up there. Of course, they'd gotten that from the Egyptians. And he takes it and he fashioned it with a graving tool. Somehow he had some kind of ability here to <laughs> make this what he's making. And he made it into a molten calf. He fashioned it, he made it. He knows what he's doing. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's there's it's it's an idol, but yet it's to kind of Make them think of the true God. They have one God, but they think just like what the Egyptians had. Okay, we can have something here physical, and but yet we can we can call him the you know the our our true God. Now that's uh, verse two through four, right? Now go to verse twenty-four. Moses comes down. We know Moses comes down, sees this. He's mad. Breaks the Ten Commandments. Throws them. And he starts questioning Aaron. And says, says, what, what is going on? What is this? What's happening here? I said to them, here's what I told them. Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> and he might have said it just that way, laughing, because he knows better than that. He, what, what did it say earlier? He molded that, he fashioned it, he put you know he knew what he did he took took some talent to put that thing together. I just threw it in there, and out it came and uh, that's serious, boy, is that serious? So we rationalize our sin, temptation. we all believe that God is sovereign, right? God's absolutely in control of everything. And so therefore, he, if he's in control of everything, then he's in control of even my sin. And if he predestined everything before the foundations of the world, you ever heard of this one? Or you ever thought of this? How could I escape from doing it anyway? You know what we've just done, if we ever say that? We've just blamed God for our sin, where he says, I tempt no one he said, well, I was going to do it anyway because God predestined this. No, 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 no. We cannot say that. And then we could say, well, yeah, but he promises to work all things together for good. He could have stopped me, but he didn't. So therefore, I went ahead and did it. And uh, hey, that's just part of the deal. We can't say that, can we? It wasn't my fault. God's sovereign. He could have kept me from doing it. Just like that guy we talked about earlier that went around the donut shop to park in that perfect spot that God was going to give him after he went around seven times. (laughs) Oh, thank you, God. (laughs) Critics accuse John Calvin of making God the author of sin. I want to tell you. We know that everybody knows that God uh, is a sovereign God. All Christians, should, if they don't say that God is sovereign, you're not even a Christian. But Calvin, they will say, stretch it a little bit too far, and he's in control over everything. And there's just certain things that he's just not in control of. That's not sovereign then, is it? But, but on this verse, right here in, in our James passage in, in one thirteen, here's what John Calvin does. And here's what he writes. He strongly denies that God is the author of sin. He never believed that God causes us to sin or He tempts us to sin. Even when the Scripture teaches that God blinds or hardens someone's heart. you remember He hardened Pharaoh's heart? Uh, Calvin asserted, "...it does not assign to God the beginning of this blindness, nor does it make Him the author of sin so as to ascribe to Him the blame." Rather, in this manner, He punishes sin and He renders a just reward to the ungodly who have refused to be ruled by His Spirit. And that's John Calvin's view on temptation. It's the responsibility of each person and his own sin. God does not cause anyone to ever sin. And that's I've heard that argument from many people who dislike Calvin. They say, well, why don't you like Calvin? Well, he believes in predestination. Well, yeah, but the Bible believes in predestination. Yeah, but but um, uh, he 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 made sin happen. He's the author of sin, and you go, where did he ever say that? Well, that's what he believes. Well, can you give me a quote on that? Well, no, but if he's sovereign over everything, he's sovereign over sin. Yeah, have you heard that kind of argument? They can't give you a reason why, what is wrong with John Calvin. It's just that he, he takes a, a, a view of the sovereignty of God, but yet he also takes all the scripture and puts them together. And um, here we, we see that, no, Calvin did not teach that. But yes, he did teach predestination. Yes, he taught the holiness of God. And uh, yes, he also taught uh, the practice of the Christian believer in living a holy life and not giving license to do anything he wants because God is sovereign God prescribed that sin for him to do and that's okay. That's the kind of theology that some people think that Calvinism is. Um, God's nature is holy. God cannot sin. And, and I, I want to put that forth very strongly. He cannot. Even if he was tempted, he, he cannot sin. God cannot be tempted by evil. Because of His holy nature, that's how holy He is. Uh, it says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. He is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Impeccable is the idea. He cannot sin. And I stretch that to the person of Jesus Christ also whenever He was here. He could not sin. He did not sin. There was a temptation like in the wilderness and such, but he did not sin. He could not. Even though there's humanity there, there is God. Uh, so he never had anything from within him to possibly sin. We do. We are born with that propensity, that kind of character. Uh, in Habakkuk one thirteen, if you want to look it up, I'm going to ahead and read it. "...your eyes are too pure to approve evil." And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. The holiness of God. If we want to overcome temptation, we have to put our minds out of the idea of putting some kind of blame on God. Um, it says that he cannot be tempted by evil. We used that word parasmos earlier about test or Tempted remember that very first word we started dealing with and the letter ah is before this which is what no or negative it means he is not experienced in evil it means he has no experience of evil he has no capacity to sin he has no vulnerability he is not vulnerable to any kind of evil in any kind of way that's the kind of nature that God has and so when we get on this text, let no one say when he's tempted, "I'm being tempted by God." For God cannot be tempted. We get really on the holiness of God. He cannot. Think, he is so pure. When you think of light, you think of it as bright as the noonday sun, and then you think of it. Yeah, bright. And then brighter and brighter. And our eyes can't, it can't even take brighter than the sun, right? It can't even take the sun, right? The holy character of God goes so beyond what we can imagine. It's the otherness of God.
1: High
0: and lifted up. In Isaiah 6, three, you get the, the seraphim. Isaiah is in the temple. God appears before Him in some sense and they say, holy, holy, holy. That's the only word that you'll see that's mentioned three times like that. The holiness of God is the very character of God. He is light. Absolute purity without sin. Perfect in every way. And it goes beyond. The other. The otherness. Also, it speaks of. It's impossible for God to ever be t- uh, tempted. He cannot delight in evil. Look in Hebrews chapter seven, verse twenty-six. What an awesome thought! This holiness of God. Hebrews seven twenty-six. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. This is the High Priest, Jesus Christ. Holy. That means to be set apart. Pure. He's a God set apart completely from all of His creation. Innocent. Undefiled. Here we go. Separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. There's the otherness of God, isn't it? It's fitting to have that kind of high priest. The ultimate. It should make us bow down. It should make us see this holiness of God. And of course, like Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. This is the prophet Isaiah, a man of God, who recognized His holiness as he stood before this great light and the presentation of the God from the heavens and above the heavens that was there in that temple. That had to be awe-inspiring. He never forgot that. And he realized who he was. And this is why... Whenever we look at it, where what is the source of our temptation? They come from our own sinful desires. Our own sinful desires. We're still in Hebrews, or James 1, right? I want to say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Makes it very clear. But each one is tempted when he's carried away, enticed by his own lust. Here he wants us to see that uh, to blame God or circumstances or even the devil or others for my sin is to dodge the real source. The real source of our sin is nobody, nothing but us. And until we acknowledge this, we will never have hope for victory. We'll never have hope for salvation. It starts with that, right? We have to recognize our sin. Uh, People will label it as some kind of sickness, as some kind of disease to take them away from the very responsibility that they have upon them. And they'll put it out in different words, and they hate to use the word sin, so they cover that up in some kind of nicety or something. Oh, we don't want to be offensive. Yeah. And here we go again. We're striking right at the heart of what this is all about. We have to acknowledge that. And when we realize that, acknowledge that, now there is hope. There is hope. As we recognize, as we see this monster that resides within And so he says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Let's get to that word lust and then we'll come back and go over those other words there. Lust. The word is epithumia. There's a there's a burning there. It's a desire. It's a longing. And it's good. Most of the time in the Bible, it's bad. But sometimes in the Bible, it's good. Is it okay to have desires? Yeah. It's okay to have desires. Lust. Here, by used by James, I know that sounds bad, but the word is is desire epithumia. It's okay sometimes in this text, and that's why it's translated probably in your translation as lust because that's what this means here. This desire. Sometimes you'll see the word desire, and in the English, it is desire, and it usually means good. But one could trip over this if they if they didn't know that um, is hunger. You ever had a hunger? Is that a desire? Is it good? Yeah. God made us to hunger. What happens if you have that hunger and uh, you start, you just happen to be in a store and you just start stealing some candy bars and put them in your pocket and you walk out. Now that hunger uh, turned into a temptation when it led to steal, which is sin. And now that desire is wrong. It's evil and wicked is what it was doing with. So, You know, temptation we see uh, is going to play to our desires. Jesus did not have to battle any kind of sinful thoughts, any kind of lust or greed or being jealous of others. didn't have that. It came from sinful hearts. That's where lust, those kind of lust come from. Sinful hearts. If you look in Ephesians 2... Uh, third verse, and of course that first three verses are very famous to all of us. You're dead in your trespass. You could not respond to God because you were dead in your sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You did this. This is what you did. It was according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the way I used to walk. That's the way I was. I was sinful. My nature was evil. It was wicked. It was bad. And of course, I, I think of the thing that went uh, went out on YouTube and was floating all over Facebook and everything with John Piper, and they caught him where he was saying, "I'm bad, I'm bad." Everybody said, "John Piper is bad," as John Piper said, "He's bad." <laughs> and then they went into that song. And but it, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's right. That's that's what uh, Paul says here. And then verse three: Among them, we too. This is the way we were. We all formerly lived in the lust, or the desires of our flesh. Epithumia. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. That's what we were. Even as the rest. All those other, all those people that are wicked. That's the way we were. We had the lust of our flesh. We had the lust, uh, the desires of the flesh. Same, Same thought, same word. The fact is that all believers have within them the powerful desires towards sin. The power of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been canceled. The debt has been paid. We still remain in these bodies. The flesh is still here. The way to overcome it is, Romans 6 says, is to consider yourselves to be dead in sin consider think about that put your mind into thinking this is how you beat sin mortify mortification kill it starve it do whatever it takes so that sin will be strangled kill it mortify it as it says in Colossians we are alive to God in Christ but we're dead to sin consider that that's what Romans 6 says Romans 7 talks about the battle. I don't do the things I should be doing, and I do the things that I shouldn't be doing. And then he gets to the end of that chapter. He says, oh, what a woeful man I am. What a position to be in. This is the battle. This is the struggle. And then Romans 8 says, but now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if you're in Christ, but here's our battle, here's our struggle, here's our war. This is the Christian life. It's a constant battle. Do you feel like you've been in a war? Well, not really recently. I don't feel like I've been in a war. Well, the war goes on. And we forget that. And and I'm thankful that we do because we get to rest. And sometimes rest physically but rest spiritually too that's kind of but realize you are in the the war is still going on and just because you have just a little respite doesn't mean that this thing's over just because one becomes a christian from here on out everything is going to go smoothly you're going to be blessed and you're going to own jet planes and 2 million dollar homes and on and on and on if i just believe in god here's what i can have and you know, the genie lives on right that's a false gospel Because He says, I'm going to give you a battle. I'm going to give you a war. I'm going to give you a struggle. I'm going to send you trials. I'm going to to send you some pretty tough circumstances. But as you go through it, you're going to trust in Me. So overcoming lust, boy, in the practice of it, we still experience it. Consider ourselves dead to that kind of sin. Look at Romans 13, verse 14. I better start speaking really fast now, right? (laughs) Romans thirteen fourteen. What do we have here? Let us behave properly. As in, uh, This is verse 13. Not, uh, in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. It gives you a, a few ideas. There are more and more and more and more sins. But, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on. Put on your armor of God. Ephesians 6. Put him on. He is your armor. And make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Epithumia. Desires. So, our our, our translations are good. It, it, um, you know, even though it's the same Greek word, at the same time, I'm glad it divides it up there and says lust, but it could put in regard to its desires. It still could be that way, but we know the context is there. And so, it's translated. Um, a longing of any kind there, um, evil desires come. Uh, look in First um, Corinthians ten, twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Just when we think we're doing good. Hey, I have no problem with that. I'm okay now. Not anymore. I'm alright. Uh-huh. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also. So that you will be able to endure it. Isn't that what James is saying about the trials? So that we would have endurance. So that it would bring us to maturity in Christ. And so there we go. uh, He can give us some pretty heavy ones. It's been broken. Because of our union with Christ, the power of sin is broken. That's the idea. It's broken, but it's still scattered there. The initial thought to sin stems from my sinful flesh. That's where it comes from. Yes, I'm a new man. I'm a new creation. The battle of the mind. It begins in the mind. No one falls into adultery without first entertaining in the heart in the thought life about this, it's somebody set themselves up as time on uh, went on. We uh, we can entertain sinful thoughts as time went on. Boom, there it is. And uh, so Satan, when he sees that happening, he presents the outward opportunity. How incredible it just shows up at that at that time. Uh, we differ from person to person, and so James says this. He says, it's your own lusts. Everybody has their own kind of temptation that they can fall easily into, enticed by our own lust, our own desires. Of course, one thing, men differ from women and women differ from men. And then we see that women differ from other women and men differ from other men. And uh, so there's a lot of different things that each one of us has uh, that we are tempted to and other things that uh, maybe we haven't been, but take heed anyway, right? Um, Humility will say, uh, take heed that um, not fall. What's that? Galatians 6.4 Yeah, that's right. And it talks there about uh, a brother who uh, has fallen and uh, we are to go to them and realize, be gentle, because we too can fall into that same kind of sin, even though we could be very prideful in it. We are not to be that way. Uh, 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Know the power, number two here, know the power of temptation. Know it. Know this power. It dwells in your heart. That's what we've been talking about. Charles Simeon wrote this on his expository outlines. He used an analogy, and he said this that we are carrying about within ourselves much inflammable material. And if we're not careful, temptation can strike the spark that causes an explosion. Well put by Simeon. Calvin said this. James' object is to teach us that there is in us the root of our own destruction. If we ignore the danger within or think that it has been eradicated, we are in a most precarious position. Realize your own sin. It comes from the heart. Matthew 15 talks about that. It's from within. It's not without, right? Um, Carried away and enticed By his own lust, these are a good picture words. And if anyone is a sportsman, they like to fish and hunt. uh, Paul is identifying with you there, and and he's saying, like for instance, like the uh, like fishing. You know, in fishing, you bait your hook, and then you throw it out there, right? That that, it's like they even have the word lure. It's to lure that fish towards that so that he would get a meal, but instead he gets hooked and carried away and he becomes the meal, right? The temptation to sin is just like that. Uh, It is like the hook is baited and it can carry us away so that we would become the meal. Do you catch that? We like to look at it. It satisfies us. It gets us something good that uh, we're missing. But instead, it hooks us and drags us into destruction. So it's it's really getting us involved with our emotions. As Christians, we're not to live by our feelings. Our feelings are given to us by God. They are a gift but they don't know the difference between right and wrong and don't know the difference between time and whatever, you know. It's just whatever it is. You know, the feelings can come up. We're talking faith and obedience. Using the mind in that. Uh, another uh, illustration is hunting. And if if you're a trapper, and I don't think there's probably anybody in here that traps, maybe. I used to as a kid. I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And we would make these... My brother would make these... Um, Rabbit traps. Of course, have some fun with that, you know. And you, of course, uh, you you um, lure that rabbit into that rabbit trap. And of course, uh, of course, if you have uh, some food or a little bit of something to lure it there, it will uh, be drawn there. Uh, it's like some kind of a power that happens. Uh, they're compelled. Uh, they're impelled. Uh, they're they're lured into the trap to be baited and then caught. It's a hunting term too. It's a fishing term. It's a hunting term. That is really pictorial, and they would have picked up on that word. Oh, that's boy, that's pretty graphic, isn't it? That's what happens when sin looks so good to us. It's like a trap. We don't see the trap, or we want to ignore it, and we see that it's covered over and everything, and and camouflaged. But just think about that that imagery there. The reason that animals are baited and trapped is that. They know that the bait actually looks really good. They don't see that it's bait. It just looks attractive. It looks inviting. It's an anticipated pleasure as they look at that and go for it. It's a tasty indulgence. It's going to taste good. It promises a satisfying morsel. Mmm. Great pleasure. Fun. Reward. It lures the suckered victim right into the trap and... He gets hooked. What puts us into that trap? Well, the word lust there dominates the theme. It's the nature of man. It's our fallenness. And it has a part of this. It has a desire for evil. That's what we battle. This desire for evil. We have our own lust. Certain things that other people maybe not get so excited about or as a matter of fact doesn't even bother them at all. Somebody could put uh, a load of cocaine right in front of me, right here, and I go, hey, "Get out of here! You know, I don't want any part. Get this out. I mean, it would not lure me at all. It never has. Thank the Lord. But other people have that draw, and they have all sorts of problems because of it. But I, you know, it wasn't anything to me, so I don't even get any glory out of it because it just doesn't attract me. But there are other things that can attract me that could be wrong if I used it wrongly. Uh, It's a particular bin of lust that uh, each one of us has. Let's go to number three. It's found in verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, we've been talking about that desire, that lust, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James now shifts his metaphor from hunting and fishing, and he goes to, really, childbirth. And he talks about, like, a pregnant woman here. uh, One who conceives. Bring forth a child. Now the illustration here, the child, and don't get this wrong, but the child is representing sin here. Now I know some people, are, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that, that's, that's not what we're saying here, okay? But you know, take the, you guys follow me, right? Okay, uh, but it does, you know, the, the sin produces what? Death a woman who has a child will produce a, a child, or that she's, she's pregnant, she's going to produce a child. You know, it comes out of that. She was conceived. Uh, here we get the context of what it is. It all began with a feeling. It really did. Mm-hmm. It, being, it begins with a feeling of wanting to be satisfied. Like we say, there can be good desires and bad desires. What happens is, you, you start with the desire in your emotions. And then it comes into your mind, and that's where deception starts. And we start to justify. We start to rationalize. And then it comes to deception. The hook is baited. The trap is baited. The intellect has been tricked, deceived. And it's saying, that will satisfy me. That will meet my need. It all starts with what? Emotion. Desire. It moves to deception of the mind. And your mind thinks, you know, I really have the right to this. I own this. You know, that's the big word today. Just own that. You believe it's there. You see it. It's beautiful. Matter of fact, to the believer, even a believer, it can be fulfilling. You think it's going to be fulfilling. Matter of fact, I can give, I can do what I want. So, this is what happens. Lust conceives. Now, what happens is how you're going to pull this off. You've got it in the mind now, the feelings, now the mind, and you've got this idea how you're going to pull this off. It's, you, boy, your mind starts getting reactive, and you come up with a plan. The will becomes active. You're toying in the mind. It's forming the design. When lust has conceived, the design is forming, and by the way, the word conceived is sulabusa, and it means to become pregnant. When lust has made something to become pregnant, conceived, it's like the design is conceived and, and if you will we'll say the womb of a person's soul. Emotion, desire, something satisfying, our mind starts justifying it. Then the disobedient is there and it brings forth sin. Ticktoe means to give birth and uh, that's where the behavior happens the emotions lead the rationalization and it finally the mind leads then to the will this plan the baby is born the deed is done and it all starts with behavior no your behavior is not where it starts at all the way back to the level of what the emotions Feelings, The person has to control the emotional response to deal effectively with sin or else it will bring death. And this is in contrast to verse 12 where it says, when you have a trial and you persevere, you have the crown of life. That's representing that. By the way, Christians can be in such sin that they do die. God just takes them out. That does happen. It still happens today. It happened in the uh, New Testament. Of the Old Testament has always kind of been that way. God can take him out and He will. It's not always because somebody has been sinning God takes them out, but uh, there can be such a sin that uh, it's just destroyed their, their whole um, demeanor and their character that God has given them. And they've disgraced the name of God. But um, So in that sense, you can look it up in First John 5.16 or... Um, that way, uh, but we know that in Romans 6:23 it says, "For the wages of sin is death." And ultimately, that's what that's the deal is, isn't it? That's what sin did; it led to death. Mm-hmm. The wages of sin is death. Of course, as Christians, we we do not lose our salvation. Um, but it's saying this is how serious sin is. Look what it does. It takes it all the way to death. Everything in our evil society, would you say we have an evil society? Everything in it will work on your emotions. All the dramatic things, the movies, television, books, music, clothing, all the alluring sights and sounds, anything that can attract our attention, whether it be our eyes, our ears, our smells, whatever, and it can capture the emotions. Do you see what battle it is? It's always before us. What are we going to do with the emotions? Put them back in third place bring your mind out renew your mind you that's how you guard guard the truth guard your mind right with the word of god think on these things right bringing everything in the mind into captivity to christ you know that text second corinthians chapter 10 and i think this really helps this really helps in our battle with sin second corinthians 10 verse 5 real quick we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience. And whenever your obedience is, complete. We're ready to punish that, right? To kill it. An unyielded mind is going to be filled with evil images. We have to control those emotions and get it on the right thinking. I have to control my mind because that's where the thing gets started. Um, with the, with, as soon as the emotions come up, boom, your mind has to go, get back there. okay? The emotions, that flesh wants to control you. You need the mind of who? Christ. The mind of Christ. You need a renewed mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You need a mind that is set on the things above But that's where Christ is in the heavenly places. Conquering temptation, this is going to take 30 seconds. You ready? First of all, know yourself. Know what sins that can get you uh, real easily. Number two, stay away from tempting situations. If you find yourself in that, stay away from it. Don't go there. Right? That's Romans 13 14 we read earlier. Number three, Have it already predetermined. Have a commitment to whenever that temptation, something comes up and you recognize it, what do you do? Flee from youthful lusts. (laughs) And that doesn't mean just for the young people, but old and young alike. Remember those youthful lusts can come up when you're 99 years old. (laughs) And number four, keep before you the completion of what temptation does. What does it do? It brings death. And that's why in verse 16 he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be fooled by it. Don't be tricked, right? Look what temptation can do. Boy, do we all need help. Every one of us here knows we have the battles. This can help. Keep drawing upon this word and you'll have more victories." Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your truth. We thank You for this book of James and how practical it is as we battle sin and recognize Your holiness. And by Your Holy Spirit, that power and the Word of God, we can be changed more into the person of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.